Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan and welcome to the Caring CEO podcast brought to you by WeCare365. We created this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and we hope there will be lots of insights for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. Our guest today is Victoria Butt. She's a serial entrepreneur and founder of Parity Consulting, a recruitment company which she established in 2012 when she was just 29. She's passionate about hiring the best employees who also share Parity's values. She's also a board member for Entrepreneurs Organisation Sydney and an angel investor for BIPOC Women, which provides funding for women entrepreneurs who come from minority backgrounds. A mother of two young children, a wife, a blogger, she is passionate about anything to do with diversity and inclusion. I first met Vic in November 2019 when she asked me to do a presentation for her clients about how to lead mentally healthy and safe teams. She and her team put on an amazing event, which her clients loved. This session was in February 2020, just before the pandemic hit and the whole world changed. As you'll hear, Victoria is a very authentic leader who is prepared to be vulnerable and admit mistakes. She has championed rapidly growing work issues, such as mental health, and how the workplace can be more understanding and helpful for women going through menopause. She cares deeply about her colleagues and clients, and this leads to constant innovation. There is much to learn from Vic. Enjoy. It's a real pleasure to welcome Victoria Butt to The Caring CEO. Welcome, Victoria. Hi, Graham. Good to be here. What does care in the workplace mean to you, Victoria? Two things. Um, The first thing is a bit of a personal mantra of mine, which is um, where I or or leadership and people think, feel, say, and do the same thing. Mm. So having that real congruence between mind, um, body, and and action, um, I think that that is, is, is the first thing. Um, the, the second thing is um, to be person-first and, and, and person-led. We often talk about being child-led parenting, uh, a little bit like that, uh, a yeah. person-led um, you know, you know, leadership or per- just person-led. Sometimes you, you see people and say, well, morning, morning, and how are you? And you sort of really get into it. But it's about really seeing people for who they are. Very good. And I saw on LinkedIn that it looks like your very first job in 2004 was in recruiting. Is that right? Yes. So, yes, I'm a recruiter by trade, although I did, I was a ski guide in Austria, actually. That was my first paid job. Um, but, um, but yes, uh, let's just say first real job. <laughs> so my first real job was um, as a recruiter back, back then. Geez, that's quite a while ago now, isn't it? Um, yes. So, and you know what? I, I can honestly say I, I don't think I will um, deviate from. Although I'm an entrepreneur and I do other things now, I think I, I'm very fond of the recruitment industry, and I don't know if I, I'll ever stop doing it in some way, shape, or form. And uh, why do you love recruitment so much? We used to say this like ages ago back here in the UK. You can sort of change people's lives. 
you can change people's lives. You know, my husband recently had a really terrible experience and he, um, you know, business experience and it was nothing, nothing to do with him, but the, the business basically, um, you know, ultimately folded and he was between roles. And I saw my beautiful husband of 10 years um, really, you know, take a significant knob. It was nothing to do with him. He did nothing wrong. It was, wasn't a performance manager, anything like that. And when he secured his new role and started that first week, I mean, I've just got my husband back. And I just think that that is another real, a, a real life kind of example. Um, likewise, I've got a very good friend who has recently been exited from a business for, for, for reasons beyond their control. And, um, but it really is so attached to lots of people's self-worth that when you're looking for a job or you're between roles, you you are at one of your lowest. And I think as a recruiter, you have absolutely duty of care to wrap your arms around that person metaphorically and look after them and, and, and help them and even just give them a kind word. And and it goes a long way. And I love I love that 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 I can make a bit of change with with someone's life. Yeah, I think that is so true. Uh, work or meaningful work is so important to our self esteem. And if we feel that we are contributing, it, it is just a positive element. And, and I think it's quite pivotal. I remember um, the Gallup organisation were looking at various parts of our well being, and I think they had five. I think it was. Uh, physical, mental, financial, social, and career. And they found out that career was actually number one, number one. So, you know, if you're happy in your career, you're happy in the rest of your life. And if you weren't, it really challenges your life. And the example you gave your husband is so telling about that. It is. And I think that what I have to say do not like about my industry is that the way it's structured from a commercial standpoint doesn't yield itself to care. Mm. It doesn't yield itself to um, looking after the people that actually need it the most. Mm. And so, and this is not necessarily, uh, I'm not certainly not pitching my business, but I, I call my business Parity Consulting purely because I was so pissed off with the, the lack of equality and that, treatment of of candidates so we believe that everyone is is equal and that we invest in all relationships regardless of whether you're client candidate partner but but being completely you know frank about it because of the way the industry structured um it doesn't yield that behavior and my team are incredible but they're they're not they're not you know we all have we all have development areas and and when when you're getting paid by your client um and you have 150 candidates and you're paid by you know 10 clients you, you only have so much time mm. um but look there's there's some basic things you can put in place to to, to look after and people and just communicate with people i mean it, there's so much automation these days when i was getting uh, back in recruitment you've reminded me in 2014 it was almost manual. It wasn't quite manual. I'm not that old, but it was really, it was, it felt really manual. And so you would have to schedule, schedule meetings almost face to face all the time and, and things. So we've come a long ways. And there's no reason why candidates aren't treated with care and respect. Yes. You may recall I worked in recruitment for quite a while as well. And I remember 
working at Morgan and Banks, which is a, you know no longer around, but a very very successful company. And I remember when the first computer arrived. There. <laughs> the first computer arrived. Honestly, it seems so bizarre not having computers in our life, but there wasn't back then. There really wasn't. I also worked in outplacement as well. And oh, how is that? I've always wondered. Ah, uh, well, it, well, the thing is, it's a, it's a different model because you get paid by each person that you help. Okay. So, okay. so for every person that comes in, there's a financial incentive to treat them well, and of yes. course, a moral incentive. But yes. um, yeah, maybe just something has to change in the recruitment to help make that happen. I once saw an advertisement. There's some of these new AI recruitment yes. groups out there. I think one of them is called Sapia. Yeah. And one of their claims to fame is that it gives every candidate feedback based on their answers and stuff. It's all AI. But uh, have you heard anything about that or heard any um, anecdotes? Oh, look, there's so much popping up with, with AI. I, I've got some initial views on, on AI recruitment. Um, look, recruitment has changed in the, the the years that I've been doing it and it will continue to change and I'm really for that providing you know providing it's a good change the trouble I have at the moment with AI and I don't think I'm going to have this view in a year or two's time I'm hoping but the trouble I'm having with recruitment with AI at the moment is that it talks about not discriminating right so it actually talks about leveling the playing field and Unfortunately, where AI and, and, and things get their data from is fundamentally a discriminatory place. So, you know, and this is a, this is a, you know, a bit of a, uh, an example, but I'm hoping it will illustrate. If you, if you put in chat GPT at the moment, a, a woman in business or a business owner in business, it will come up with 10 images of a, a woman in business, all very kind of sort of, you know, old, I think old school, but almost like investment banking kind of, you know, full full black suits, mm. you know, not pantsuits because that's too, you know, that's <laughs> that's aggressive for a woman, right? We have to wear a skirt and, you know, all of those sort of old school things. Mm. Um, and then if you put put the same in for a man, it comes up with 500 different images mm. of different, you know, and, and these men come from different walks of life and they're, they're colourful. All of the women were white um, and all of the men, there was some colour in there and there was some diversity in there, but, but, but broadly um, they're all white too. Um, and so I think that AI is going to, there's a real governance piece to this. There's yeah. an ethical, there's integrity, and then there's, there's this sort of the governance piece and the integrity of the data I'm referring to. And so... I'm not stressed about my business taking a hit because of these things at the moment. And actually, um, I think a lot of my clients are really looking into the, the discrimination sort of mm-hmm. piece of it because it's coming out to say, hey, we're not going to discriminate because, you know, everyone's equal. It's based on past trends. So, I mean, <laughs> and how can we base a progressive future on past trends yeah. that aren't necessarily progressive? And also, what's also really freaking worrying is that these 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 structures, these bots, these processes are essentially set up by three to four people internally within the mm. business. I mean, there's different businesses and things, but mm. three to four people will be the main stakeholders to bring this AI recruitment bot in house. So it will be set up in line with their 
preferences mm. and how they, they see the world. Mm. And so you can't get four different types of people. Odds are two are going to be from one gender, maybe more. Two are going to be one from one ethnicity. And so, <laughs> um, so for me, it's like, look, yes, let's really use AI. I would love to see more data out there. At the moment, it's a lot of bells and whistles and smoky mirrors. Mm. Um, I'd like to, I'd like to really, really look at the unintended consequences. And um, my fear at the moment is that it is it is going to send the the DEIB agenda um, backwards, not forwards. However, I think we we can leapfrog that. Maybe in two to three years' time, when everyone's kind of um, you know, or some of these startups that perhaps um, haven't made it, or perhaps we've had some things ironed out. I'm mm-hmm. hopeful mm-hmm. that it will really improve the recruitment process. You uh, grew up in UK and uh, came to Australia. What brought you here? I came here on a holiday to see my best mate who was living here and I um, I just realised how unhappy I was in England um, <laughs> and how um, maybe it's I've got the seasonal affective disorder, but I was just really sad all the time. Um, no, I wasn't sad all the time, but I, I came here and I just felt happy. I just couldn't describe it. I sat on the Noosa Beach, looked around and went, I, I just want this life. Um, <laughs> and so I went home and told my parents, I was 25, told my parents, sold my car, rented my flat and jumped on a plane. You had a, some recruiting jobs in Sydney, and but when you were 29, you started parody. What was... Um, the drive for that, you mentioned that you were a bit disheartened with how candidates were treated in the traditional yeah. recruitment firms. Yeah. Any, what was any other drivers for, um, you know, starting your own business, which is always a, it's a big thing. Yeah, it was a big thing. Um, I know this is not the, 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 the answer that I should give, but it, it is the, it's the truth. I didn't see any other way forward. Mm. So I was in a business that was imploding. There was some bad behaviour amongst the senior leadership team. I had asked for a seat at the table. I was I was outperforming everyone else, but I was young and I was inexperienced as a leader and I think I said too much of what I thought. Mm. Um, and they were five men and, and they had their thing and I, I I can see why I wasn't included, but I, I don't think they were really overly progressive in their thinking about inclusion, which was which was fine. Um, but... For me, it was like I just can't can't be here anymore because there was some sort of internal bullying going on. I felt really uncomfortable. Not bullying me, but just internal bullying each other. It was awful. And so I, I touted the market. I went and met some CEOs of recruitment businesses. I was just uninspired. I was like, you know, it's a bunch of bunch of white men, you know, <laughs> that basically just wanted to uh, this is gonna sound terrible, but they just they just wanted to get the yield from their stump. You know, it was all about yield, mm. all about, you know, performance and all about everything else. So it's got to be life. has got to be more than just making money mm. and, and screwing people. To, I mean, it's just not, I just didn't feel right. So it's like, no, I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to be a one or two man band. I'm going to be my own boss and I'm going to put my money um, into the, the money left over, I want that to go into the philanthropic stuff that meant something to me, and we still do that. Ten percent of our profits still now go into um, our Parity Plus philanthropic um, fund, and essentially, um, I, I did that, and I started uh, with with one of my teammates from my previous place, and 
never intended to build, didn't want to grow, just didn't want to work for someone else and not have that um, respect and, and kind of, you know, inclusion. I built my own table. That's what I say to people. They didn't give me a seat at the table, so I built my own. <laughs> and what have been some of the highlights of the business? Oh, one in particular, um, just after COVID hit, um, I decided to um, hire people based on future uh, sort of merit and future skills. I wanted to prove to my clients that a CV was useless and that really you need to take people on face value. You need to look at the not what they've done, but actually their their potential going forward. And I ran an online uh, anyone gets an interview. It was, it was called the Rule Change Project, and so basically we went out into the market. There's a lot of people out of work at that point, mm-hmm. and we went out to the market and said, we will guarantee you an interview. Wow. wow. We're a recruitment business and we're running this. We want to hire five people. Uh, we're on a growth trajectory. We know the market's not very good, but we're confident in ourselves. And we wanted to use the experiment to show clients because we wanted to prove to clients that this whole kind of reviewing CDs is just archaic. Um, and we did it. We got over 500 expressions of interest. <laughs> so you could get an, so you could get an interview only if you filled out two questions. The first question was, oh, you know, I actually can't remember the first question. It was a very generic question. The second question was, why are you unique? And the third question was, I'm sorry, I don't think there actually was a third question. So 500 people expressed an interest. We had over 300 people turn up to the first introduction. So what we did is we did an introduction because it was all very weird. What is going on? This is weird. And because it was it was scaling, we, we, we couldn't have one-to-ones and it was COVID, so everyone was quite comfortable online. Um, and so we had over 300 people and me and my team presented and said, hey, this is who we are. We're doing this. It's very unconventional, but we want, we believe in future and we don't want any kind of, you know, previous experience to impact you, um, and your chances. And so essentially we went through that process, three rounds of interviews all online. Um, and we decided that we didn't want to bring any discrimination or bias into it. So we renamed the candidates as they got into a smaller group. We've renamed them super, superheroes. So that although you have a visual bias um, and you have all sorts of other bias, we didn't want the name to bias. So we had that and we had a sort of a, a very uh, objective scoring system type thing. Anyway, we hired the five people um, and it was an amazing experience. And over the last three years, we still have two of the five. So we hired five. One, one dropped off quite quickly, so we had four. Um, and then we, we basically essentially have, have two you know, left, if you like, um, for various reasons. Um, but they are the most incredible staff. Um, one of them is an ex-data scientist, fresh off the boat from another country, was significant, super smart, but just off paper, perhaps wasn't desirable because not local experience and English second language, and that can cause problems for some employers. Highest performer. Um, and mm. another individual. In fact, I, don't, I still couldn't tell you what lovely Eva used to do before she joined us. 
Um, she she tells me it's a bin, so she used to do something else. But, you know, I've never seen her CV. I can tell you how old she is. All I know is that she is absolutely incredible and we couldn't work without her. Extraordinary. And what were the lessons you learned from that? And were have you been able to convey those to your clients? So the short answer is no. Um, I don't know if we did it enough times to get that sort of real solid evidence point. Mm. Um, and actually, Brad, the market moves so flipping quickly. Mm. So we did this when we had additional time and resourcing. Mm. And then by the time we launched, um, the, it was sort of, sort of the, the, the COVID hiring surge happened. Mm. We were so busy that uh, unfortunately as a small business, we just sort of cracked on. And so the lesson I learned is that although I, I went into it with best intentions and I genuinely wanted to use it as a case for our clients and we still talk about it. We do so social media campaigns on it and we're always offering interviews without prejudice, um, but it didn't have impact. Well, it did, and, and I shouldn't say that. It, it had absolute impact for, for people, but not on the scale I wanted. You've um, been always very passionate about uh, diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging. What does that come from? Where did you get the passion for that? I think the whole level in the playing field and, and you know, giving people a voice that don't have a voice has always been. It's kind of how I was brought up. So very, I've got a very sort of equality orientated um, family in, in some respects. And so I think there was some sort of um, nature as part of that. But um, I was actually discriminated against um, quite significantly a few years back in a, um, a group of peers, actually. So this was because I've worked for myself for nearly 11 years. So this was a group of peers and I was treated incredibly poorly. And I just, I just remember um, thinking, oh my goodness, like if you're treating me this way, where, um, you know, quite a strong character, I've got a privileged background, I, you know, can hold my own and, you know, blah, blah, blah. What are you doing to people that are, you know, really, really um, genuinely need, need a, need a leg up or need, need to be included? Um, and so it just set it just set me off on a bit of a mission, and I haven't looked back. So I'm actually very grateful for my awful experience. Um, and since then, I'm really proud of some of the DIB stuff I've done. Um, I that same peer group I set up at the regional DEI group. I lifted the lid on some of their issues. I travelled around the country speaking to my peers. Um, entrepreneurs and uh, really proud of some of the work that I've done there. I got I got them to change all of the graphics, the photos. We have we've got a DEI statement. I mean, look, doesn't sound a lot, I know, but I, I am really proud of what I did. And since then, um, I've been asked many times to to speak at at DEI conferences and gigs and I mentor some people in DEI. I mean, I'm, I'm very much a self-taught professional, really. Mm. Um, so that's mm. kind of like one of my little jobs on the side. Mm. It's not a business. It's just a hobby. And uh, I'm sure you're very proud of Parity Plus. Can you just uh, explain to our listeners why you yeah. started from that and what's it about? Yes, thank you. And I want to bring you into this, Graham, because um, you were a keynote speaker for Parity Plus a few years ago, and I, I'd like to 
to explain the impact that's had for, for, for the community as well. So it, it was really on the back of setting the business up. I didn't want to just make money without, I didn't want to become one of these people that I was interviewing for, you know, all of these, you know, you know, talking about yield all the time, you know, what's the, what's the profit on that person? Well, that person is a person. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, so essentially I said when I started Parity that 10% of their profits would be Parity, go into Parity Plus and Parity Plus would be a fund essentially to help add to the community. So we do give um, money to five different charities. Those charities are aligned with their values. We have the Women's Resilience Centre run by Simone Allen, who is a, is how I understand he's a mutual <laughs> friend of both of ours. It was Simon that introduced us. Yeah. It was. And Simon actually was one of my sisters uh, in that peer group I just mentioned. Mm. And we supported each other through some of the, the, the difficult times. But um it, it we we um yeah, so we have a our our five um charities dressed for success. Um we also support Too Good Co, which is Run by Rob Castley, um, and he does an incredible thing with homeless women and rehabilitation, and just incredible what Tuga could do. So we, so all of our charities are very much based on sort of women and you know DIB stuff and just leveling the playing field. Um, and the remaining amount of money we put into essentially um, give back events, and so uh, we work together. Um, the the months before COVID here. You gave a keynote presentation to 130 of my clients and kicked it out of the park. Oh, thank you. Um, and it was it was so interesting because mental resilience by that stage wasn't on my radar. Mm. Um, and um, I remember sending the invite out to all of our clients, and we always get we get people sign up, but often you have to really push these events, you know, mm. and. Uh, could believe it. Sent it out within 48 hours. It was, it was sort of, I think it was about 85% full. And I remember phoning you going, oh, goodness. Um, but it was great. And I don't know if you remember, but um, COVID hit, and obviously that was just a really awful time for, for people. And you and I stood up a seminar within one week of actually it was two weeks of COVID, you and I stood up a seminar that had 500 people attend on mental resilience. Unbelievable, wasn't it? It was extraordinary. And even though there was a little bit of talk about COVID then, we had no idea of the implications then. Even, was that like about a, a week or two later, it all locked down, but it just moved so quickly, didn't it? It moved so quickly. And the facts that you were talking about mental resilience at this event, and then we sort of followed up with a webinar. I do believe that the work that, that you did and that we facilitated in that sort of two, three months period helped people. I, I, I do. I, I just yeah. fail to see how a, po- a subject can be so popular with yeah. an expert like yourself delivering um, messages and help and assistance and that 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 you didn't touch all those people's lives in in probably one of the worst times in our generation because we just didn't know, did we? It was all very scary. And it was the unknown. You know, I, I surveyed audiences regularly about what was their greatest stress, and everyone said the number one was uncertainty. And humans don't cope well with uncertainty. You know, I've actually seen a scientific study where someone will choose to get a little electric shock, rather than know that they 
could or could not get an electric shock. So people prefer to certainly get an electric shock compared to not knowing whether they will or not. <laughs> it's, it's sort of a bit like a dream now, like a, like a weird dream, but uh, it was incredible how it played out. It played out so quickly, resulted in so much change, and there was, a, there was no doubt there was a real need for building personal resilience and focusing on the things that we can control. Even now, um, you know, a lot of people think, well, things are back to normal, but I spoke at an event yesterday and I, I shared some research from Deloitte, which came out in June 23, so just a month ago, and it looked at four countries, Australia, UK, Canada, the US, and it showed that half people were still experiencing overwhelmed stress Always or often, <laughs> always or often. Um, so it's it's not going away. It's still a very, very important issue. And I think the thing that has become just so obvious is that we must run teams in a way that provides good mental health, provides support, provides connection. And um, that's why, you know, we were just talking before we came on air about this belonging, and and this belonging is just so important. And when there is a lot of hybrid work, we have to work differently to make that happen as well. You know, you have to. I was just going to ask you about that hybrid work because I'm sure you and your team are working in a hybrid way. What have you done to help build that connection, care, and belonging when you're not always in the same room? Yeah, I think if if a business can get that right, you really now life hasn't you you know because it, it really is about if you look at productivity like if you want to really get micro on it productivity goes up when people feel safe and and, and be- where they belong right absolutely so i mean i don't think you'll get many people that um argue with that oh i'm sure you would actually <laughs> everyone wants an argument about something but you know broadly speaking most people appreciate if you're feeling safe um and you you belong um Oh look, we've we've done a few things. I, I'm not convinced um, that that we've we've got it we've got it right. Um, I think it's incredibly difficult as you grow a business and as the business gets bigger. It is sort of quite difficult to and 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 margin pressure mm-hmm. and and financial pressure typically can bring the worst out in in people. Mm-hmm. They feel pressurized. They behave differently. You feel pressurized. You manage differently. So I think it's. I honestly think, Graham, every day is a new day mm. making people feel that they belong yeah. because, you know, if you can just, you know, go out for a couple of drinks, great, let's do monthly drinks. Mm. That is so kind to cut it. Yes, you know, sending your beautiful staff on courses that, that really interest them and putting a, a unique EVP together. We, we do this cool thing where, you can pick because I don't believe everyone's wired um, and motivated the same. So I could give one of my staff 50 grand bonus and it actually just, it not, they wouldn't appreciate it. Mm. Well, 50 grand actually, I think they would appreciate that. But <laughs> let's call it, call it, um, you know, you give it a five grand bonus and say, you know, well done, a particular piece of work. Um, 
However, if I took that same staff member out for lunch and um, spent a bit of time with them and invested in them, which wouldn't cost me $5,000, they would be so much more engaged and, and feeling feeling good. We have a unique employee value proposition. Uh, we're still a small business, really. So, you know, we, we can kind of do this. So essentially, you get to a bit like your health fund. To a, to a point, because we also have unlimited annual leave because we believe, because we've got expats and I'm also from the UK, I believe in rest and relaxation and holidays and things. We don't pay for unlimited, unfortunately, but we do provide unlimited. Um, and so, yeah, the EVP stuff's really important so people can kind of tick what motivates them. We've done a few things over the years with, you know, with people with kids. So we've done a Christmas with lots of philanthropic uh, activities. So we did a volunteer day recently addressed for success. Um, we do monthly cele- celebrations, if you like, and these are these are purposeful celebrations, Bali, um, sort of International Women's Day. We've done the Biggest Morning Tea, you know. So we do a monthly sort of charity event that's really important that, you know, people seem to really like. Uh, we have employment engagement surveys and stuff just sort of temperature check where people are, but... I am not going to sit here and say for a second that we've 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 nailed it. I just think mm. it is a continuum. Mm. It is hard bloody work as a leader, but it's mm. the most important job to do. Yeah. Because if you can do that, rather than come in like I do sometimes and get straight into client work or get straight into the team, come on, what are we doing? Bigger, better, faster. Mm. You know. My, I've got a, a couple of GMs who are much better than I am and they will come in and they will lean into the belonging before they go into the work talk. Yeah. I'm not, I need to get better at that. Mm. Uh, I've got 150 million different things in my brain, so I almost need to sort of get them out. But I do believe that if you can go people first, like I said in the start, you know, that, that sort of, you know, human first always, and you can just look after people, um, then that helps a lot. Thanks for being part of the Care First movement. You may be interested in some free resources that we've prepared at wecare365.com.au. First resource is a building a mentally healthy culture checklist, which contains all the elements that you'll need to prepare and launch a mentally healthy workplace program and how to build momentum for up to a year after that launch. The second resource is how to support a teammate or a loved one in distress poster. This provides guidance about how to identify someone who's struggling, how to have the are you okay conversation with empathy, and how to guide them to the help they need. These resources can be found at wecare365.com.au. You know, that um, Gallup engagement survey question uh, or statement is, my supervisor or someone at work seems to care about me as a person. And the more people that strongly agree with that, the higher the productivity, the profit, the customer service levels, and employee tenure. And it's been asked, you know, I think 15 million times now in 135 countries. It's it's ironclad that that leads to results. And whereas before, I think we've, um, you know, feel it intuitively makes sense, but it's actually been shown that it does. It it, it actually works. It, it is providing that care, the psychological safety and the mental health, it is the strong skills going forward. Um, it's the difference between a business being successful and not being successful because yeah. if you provide that environment, it leads to innovation, it leads to trying new things 
it needs to persisting and learning, but just having a common a common goal as a group going forward. It, it, it's the number one priority now. It has to be. It has to be, and uh, you know what I I am I am quite pained to see that the pressure that people are being put under to return to to the office and the fact that in COVID I found um, I really genuinely found employers were exceptional. I couldn't name you one employer that wasn't great. I mean, yes, people got stood down. Yes, people were let go. But but generally speaking, um, my clients and and people around us did a great job. People first, genuinely, because I think we all thought we were going to die. <laughs> but, you know, it's people first. And now it's going back. It's going back. And it's just, I hate, I hate it. I hate it that it's going back to where it was pre-COVID. And we we do a sort of a salary survey every year. It's quite a big thing for, for our community. And uh, we're just about to launch it. And 70, I think it was about 78%, and I don't quote me on this, but it certainly wasn't wasn't sort of between 75 and 80%, and said that their main gripe at work was this um, sort of lack of flexibility. Yeah. I think that some of this stuff is tied to each other. Is that how you treat your people also ties into that flexibility piece as well. Um, and look, I I do think people do need to get some perspective, <laughs> and I do think that it is difficult to work from anywhere. Even though I think we all would love to, um, it's not doing relationships any good, and there is definitely a case for genuine hybrid working. Definitely, definitely. And I um, interviewed earlier this week, funnily enough, um, Charlotte, who was from Four Day Four Day Week Global, based in New Zealand. And she helped oversee the 60-plus pilot, 60-plus company pilot in the UK trialling the four-day a week. And they've got evidence. <laughs> if you go to the website, it's four-day week global. There's a, there's a report there which showed that absenteeism went way down, stress went way down, quality of life went way right up. And the outcomes stayed the same or got better. So, you know, forcing people back is dumb. It is really dumb because, uh, you know, there will be some enlightened employers that say, you know, and I think, I think the most enlightened actually, I saw a guy who was the head of the future work for uh, Novartis who was based in Switzerland, Olivia. He, I interviewed him on this podcast as well. And he talks about hybrid two and hybrid two is where the team works it out. What happens? You know, the team works out where and and how they work. And if the team can work out that people stay at home, people come back, it's their decision. And I think just that just makes so much sense compared to some ironclad rule, which is dumb. <laughs> it's incredible. I have to look that up. Love to listen to that and look up hybrid too. Um, it is pretty much consuming about 75% of our time at the moment to talk about it with our clients. And wow. um, it is, uh, we speak about it internally. We definitely, you know, we're not, we're not uh, immune to the challenges that hybrid can bring or remote can bring. Or, mm-hmm. I, I mean, we will never go back to fully in the office, but um, I, I love that team, that trust in the team to, to come up with that. It mm-hmm. just goes back to that empowerment. Mm. And that 
um, control is probably not entirely the right word, but what, what I've found really interesting is that in, so, so COVID hit and the control, let's say the power, power, because that's probably the better word. Mm. The power was firmly in the employer's hands. Mm. Um, mm. And, and most didn't abuse it. Most mm. did, mm. Did, did great things. You know, shareholders understood that they wouldn't get the yield. Board members were signing off, um, you know, more annual leave and, and more. Yeah, everyone, you know, I think dealt with it quite well. Um, and then what's actually happened is that then the pendulum swung to the employee having the power which was the great resignation, the YOLO movement, that kind of, you know, I want 35% pay rise and I want it now type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's actually really interesting is that when that was happening, the remote work from home and everything, that actually was was being done because as an employer, if you had forced your team back and, and not, not leaned into what their needs were, you weren't going to have a team. Mm. because the, the power was sitting with the employee. Mm. The power is now back to the employer. Mm. It's not fully back because we still have a really low unemployment rate and we still have skills gap shortages and we're still busy as a recruitment company, you know. But there absolutely is a shift in, in the markets and a shift mm. in, in budgets and, and, and things. And so what is really upsetting for what, you do what I do with DEIB, you know, what, what we all do and has worked so hard to educate leaders to, to care and, and, and to, to really lean into their staff. Unfortunately, all of that work was done. I'm seeing that I feel like it's dissipating again. Yeah. I feel like we've just jumped back to this authoritarian, you must be back in the office five days a week and if you don't, you've not got a job. And it's like, oh, have we come? We haven't come as far as I thought, perhaps. Yeah, I, I, I'm optimistic. I think um, the people will walk for the right environment. And, yes. um, okay. you know, it, it's like a pendulum really, isn't it? You know, we went extreme work from home, nothing else. Then we went hybrid and now people are trying to, there's an effort to get everyone back in the office full time. But, but there's pushback as well, big pushback. You know, the Commonwealth Bank, their union is pushing back and taking the employer to court about being able to work from home. <laughs> so, so uh, all the, all these things are playing out every day. It's um, it's a moving it's a moving feast, that's for sure. I think our children will have some incredible case studies for university <laughs> in ten years' time, twenty years' time. I think this will be a case study for fifty years. I reckon. Yes, I think so. <laughs> Victoria, what about hardships in your business? What's been some of the tough things about having your own business? Look, I think there's there's two main ones. Um, the 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 people, the people stuff. So when um, you know, when you when you work work with someone and it sort of doesn't work out for various reasons, um, whether it's their side or your side, and the impact of that on them and you and others. I've taken that. I've taken that pretty pretty hard. I haven't probably haven't set people free quick enough in some respects, um, and then perhaps you know, sort of hired not quite the, the right fit because we are we are a sort of quite a specific um, you know specific business, and we do like to hire culture add and not culture fit. So we're always looking for someone to bring something to the business that's different. 
But unfortunately, that can be disrupt disruptive at times. But I think the main one was um, I set up another business about 18 months ago and um, I stepped away from my recruitment business and the new business um, just tanked. Like I set it up wrong, uh, the product was wrong, the pricing was wrong, the everything was wrong. And, and I just... Uh, <laughs> I just, it, I just really struggled. Like I really kept hold of it for too long as well. So I kept hold of it for a year and I'm just about to, to shut it down because it's, mm. it's just not right. And I, I, I have to be all in with what I'm doing. And so mm. I was trying to be a mum, a business owner and then a startup mm. person. Um, and essentially I, I, I think I probably failed at all of that. I'm hoping I didn't overly fail at the mum stuff, but I expected it a bit. Um, but I definitely didn't do anyone else justice in that process. So, mm. um, yeah, I've, I've been licking my wounds for about six months mm. on that one. So I'm ready to talk about it, but it's still I'm not, not quite ready to send ASIC a letter to say shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> and that's uh, that's really interesting, isn't it? You know, you've you had or have a very successful recruitment business and experienced great success. How did that impact your self-esteem? Oh, it was it was horrendous. It was awful. I was a shadow of myself. I lost 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 the plot. Thought uh, imposter syndrome was very 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 back on my shoulder every day. Um, I remember I was in Fiji with my in-laws, my beautiful children, and my husband, and. I was just so sad. Like I was like, you know, the stealth talk. It was was real. You know, you're crap. You're worthless. You can't do anything. You know, really bad. Totally extreme. Like you know, not logical. Mm. Um, and I know it wasn't logical. Even at the time, I knew it wasn't logical. But it, it was how I felt. And you know what the worst thing was is that when I went back into my recruitment business, um, I nearly blew that up as well. So um, I'm really being very frank here. I went back in and because I was so desperate for validation, I was so desperate to to be confident again and, and know what I was talking about that I basically disempowered my senior leadership team. Mm. And it was train wreck. Mm. And um, my GM who runs the main kind of business, um, she, um, I remember sort of, you know, in a meeting in the kitchen with her and I said something and her whole face changed and she looked really upset and I was like, oh, what did I say? You know, anyway, we had it out and poor thing was was basically said, look, if you're, if you're not going to allow us to do what we've been done while you've been swanning off on another business, mm. then, then I'm out of here. Like, you know, who? Mm. Um, and that was so difficult because that was one of my, and it is one of my key members of staff. I just can't bear the thought of her leaving. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I had, um, so my confidence was low and then I blew up a couple of things and then I messed up some other things. And so I really, I really wasn't feeling very good. But no. that was uh, about two months ago now. I've since taken a step back, really reevaluated. I'm working so much more on what is what is sort of best for the business and less about what's best for kind of my confidence and getting myself to feel better. Mm. So um, I, I do believe I am a, a, a caring CEO and I'm so grateful to be talking to you 
However, I, I can totally see how that takes a back seat when you're in, in threat, you're in danger. Yeah. Um, it's uh, one of the um, people who interviewed earlier on was Mike Schneider, the, the CEO of Bunnings. And Bunnings have just been, you know, just a, an amazing success in Australia. And they made the decision to expand into the UK and Ireland. And it didn't work. It was a different market, different environment. And he talked about that being, you know, really personally devastating. He talked about needing to get a mindset coach to get back on the right path. And, um, but, you know, just wonderful that you talk about that. He talks about that. It, 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 it's, it's a vulnerable thing to discuss, but people relate to it. They, they, they're attracted to, that sort of honesty, but also lessons and, and also realising that some of our worst mistakes are our greatest lessons. Like I went through five years of depression where I wasn't working, never thought I'd work again, but it led to, you know, different um, values, different priorities, and I now look upon it as a gift and uh, I'm sure that you will as well. Vic one one day and and just really see it and it will take a bit of distance to get that perspective but I really believe that you will see that as a gift. Yeah, I do. I've I've already started to um you know see it like that, but I do a bit of bit of time, um, and I'm just really grateful that my leadership team called me out as well um, and said, you know, what are you doing? Your behaviour so poorly, and and I haven't been honest with them about how much it affected me to sunset a business. Um, I told everyone I was sunsetting the business and um, I put a smile on my face and, you know, acted as though it was like I did it in my sleep. But I was really upset and I didn't I didn't show any vulnerability at that point. Mm. And so they just moved on, of course. They, you know, they're just like, oh, well, Victoria sunsetted another business type thing, you know, which um, which is not how I felt. It was deeply wounded from it. And so I started behaving differently, which is why that whole congruence thing, like thinking, feeling, saying and doing is my absolute mantra. Mm. And it annoys me when I don't live by those rules. But I, I, I'm trying very hard, I have to say, to to always be really upfront with what's kind of going on in the background so that people can conceptualise or, sorry, contextualise, um, you know, set of decisions or, or behaviours. You came from quite humble beginnings, as I understand it, um, you know, in the UK. Yeah. Does it surprise you where you are now, how far you've come? Or did you always have that view of that you're going to do great things? Oh, look, I think even I saw my mum and dad recently and they laughed and joked and said how I'm not really part of the family because I'm like this weird anomaly. And it sounds <laughs> but it was actually um, completely in jest, although somewhat true. <laughs> um, no, I just, I don't consider myself particularly successful. I think I've worked really bloody hard and I provide for my family. I'm very proud of um, some of the cool things that we've done. Um, but, um, no, I just, I've always just followed how I've felt about the world. If I felt sad or I'm happy or, you know, I've always followed that. Um, for me, I think, um, because I've never had wealth or money or anything, very much working class 
British upbringing, very humble beginnings. I don't want for it. And so time, times are a bit difficult. At the moment we've got rising interest rates, we've got, um, I have some personal things going on, which, you know, things are a bit tight, you know, financially things aren't, um, you know, what they seem, um, you know, but I think when you don't have money, you don't miss it when you, when you don't have it again. And so when, when I had money, I tend to spend it. <laughs> um, and you know, I probably haven't been as, I haven't been as careful as I should have been, but whenever I had money, I spend it. I spend it on people that I love. Mm. I spend it on experiences that, um, when Paul lost his job recently, we went to Vietnam with the kids for two weeks and traveled around Vietnam. Magic. And you know, the kids are only seven and so they're very young. You take them out of school for, yeah, a couple of weeks doesn't make any difference. Um, and, and you just spend it. And, and we, we, we we were careful with what we were spending. We we really wanted the kids not to have a, a four or five star hotel experience, right? Because they're just going to grow up to be awful humans. So we we you know we went really low end. We wanted to make sure the kids understood what it was like to travel, and and it was just wonderful. And you know, and then we go later on in the year. We're going away for quite some some months again, and so. You know, for, for me, it's about spending it on experiences, but also people that I love. Yeah. I've got a couple of people that aren't in a financially um, good position at the moment. And so all my job is, is to help them just to make sure that they just, you know, get a bit of relief. So, um, yeah, I, I think, I think people that do have some success have a duty of care to pick their friend up and, yeah. and embrace, embrace that so they can all enjoy. Yeah. The world. It's been an absolute pleasure catching up, uh, Vic. It's um, love working with you previously, and we've had some great conversations in the past. I've loved our chat today. I asked this at the end, what advice would you give to your 18-year-old self, knowing what you know now, you know, as a, I guess, a, a working class girl going to university? What advice would you give that person? Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking about this. Um, Look, I think I think back yourself. Um, I think the the self doubt and the self belief were real inhibitors for me, um, and so real confidence killers. Mm. Um, and the second one would absolutely be: do not compare yourself or judge others. The comparison is a killer, yeah, because it it really consumes you, and you're not living in your own. You're not living in your, um, you know, I call it authentic self, but you're not living in your own skin because you're constantly looking, you know, those type of people. But also I really believe in no judgment because, you know, we've all had times where we've done something that's probably undesirable and we've all done great things and we've all got our own issues. Mm. And so you are not to judge others and to put yourself in their shoes where possible. Um, so I don't think I've, I, oh, well, I'm not perfect on, on any of those, but I, I really do hope that um, I stopped, I would have loved to have stopped comparing myself earlier mm. and also not looking on others as harshly as I was looking upon myself. I would always judge myself so hardly, you know, harshly, and I, I used to hold others to the same standard. Yeah, I love uh, Maya Angela's definition of success. She says success is liking yourself, liking what you do, and liking how you do it. And that's different for everyone. And, and I think, you know, when we 
can tap into what's what's our authentic self. How do we thrive authentically? That is really when we can have a very good sense of well-being and uh, because it's, it's us. It's not someone else's and I've fallen into the, the trap of envying other people as well. I guess through all my work and and, you know, the fact that I've been in through really tough times and attempted to take my life, people tell me stories. And what I've learned is that you have no idea what's going on behind closed doors. You have no idea. And, you know, our friend Simone and the Women's Resilience Centre sees that every day, every week. And, um, yeah, you know, being true to ourselves is the, is the way to go. Thanks so much, Vic. It's been a wonderful chat. We might have part two. Sometime uh, you know what? It's a, it's a real pleasure, and thank thank you for including me. You're doing some incredible work. Thank you for your your investment in this. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you've learned some practical tips that you can try with your team. If you've enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. We also welcome any comments. If you're interested in seeing more details about our simple, scalable WeCare365 mental health training programs, please visit us at wecare365.com.au. We strive to make these programs easily accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a caring CEO you would like to see interviewed, please email us at support at wecare365.com.au. Thanks once again for joining us.